This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. And uh, open up your Bibles, if you have one with you, to 1 Corinthians. There's a a Bible under the seat in front of you. If you don't have one, you can grab that. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, you can just keep that uh, with you. It's our gift to you. So today we begin a, uh, a really long journey. We're going to spend some time in the book of 1 Corinthians, maybe eight months, nine months, something like that. It'll be one of the longer series we've ever done as a church. We'll take a break at Christmas. We're going to actually do a four weeks uh, of Advent. We're going to recognize four Sundays of Advent this year. So we will do that. But we're just going to work our way through this book. And I just trust that two of the big things that will happen, at least we're praying for, is that one would be that the gospel would be more real to us. What Jesus has done done for us through his death, burial, and resurrection would just become more real because it's central in this book. And that secondly, we're calling this series Together, um, How the Gospel Builds Community in the book of 1 Corinthians, Together. So uh, secondly, that God would build us together as a people around the gospel. And, uh, and I trust that he'll do that through this book. It won't be boring, I assure you that. Uh, hopefully the sermons won't be. I can't assure you that the sermons won't be boring at points, but uh, you can pray for me. Uh, but the, the book is not boring because the, the reality is that if in the New Testament uh, there were a reality TV show about a church, it would be the book of Corinthians. It would be the church at Corinth, uh, housewives of, of the church at Corinth. I mean, if there was a reality series, this would be it because they've got things going on here they don't have going on in any church in the New Testament, at least that we know about from the writings. So it is a, uh, it's a fascinating book with a lot of just crazy stuff going on. So anyway, we're going to read the first nine verses as an introduction, and uh, then I'll pray and we will jump in. So 1 Corinthians 1.1, I'm reading from the ESV. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we set off on a journey through this book, we just dedicate ourselves at the beginning. We submit ourselves to your word, to the authority of your word. 
We pray that we would be hearers and doers of your word. We ask you to open our eyes to the glory of Jesus Christ, that the gospel would be clear to us, clearer than ever before, and that we would grow in grace because of the gospel. We pray your design for the church, your people, would be clearer than ever before, and not just conceptually, but we pray that you would draw our hearts together in you, and that we would build our lives increasingly together as your people for your glory. We pray that all that you warn us of in this book, all of what we learn from at times the bad example of a church, we pray that you would, that you would show us our own weaknesses and propensities and that we would humble ourselves and confess our need of you. Lord, I just pray most of all that at the end of this series, we would say, we know Jesus better. We value your church more and our lives are transformed as we walk together as disciples for your glory. We pray today that you would speak to us through this passage in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, one of the reasons that possibly the church at Corinth would, uh, would make a reality TV show is just the environment that they lived in. Uh, Corinth was a city in many ways that had a lot of similarities to a modern, um, a modern city, a modern cosmopolitan city like New York City, San Francisco. I mean, it's much smaller than that, maybe a quarter of a million people, I think, in Corinth. But, but it had some of the similar characteristics. Uh, one thing about the city was it was, um, it was built uh, along an isthmus, which is a, a, a land body that has water above it and below it, which made it a port town. So it was a place for shipping and trade. It was a prosperous city because of people who would come and uh, trade their goods that would do commerce in the city of Corinth. And like many seaports have historically been, it was a city that was notorious. It was a city that was infamous uh, for its sin, for its immorality. And it wasn't just a seaport where sailors would come and have a good time, so to speak, but it was a city that was really built around immorality uh, of a religious nature. One thing that stood out in the city of Corinth was the Acrocorinth. The Acrocorinth was a, a hill that was about 1,800 feet tall. And at the top of this hill, uh, there was the dominating temple of Aphrodite. Now, maybe that name's familiar to you. I remember in seventh grade, uh, we studied Greek mythology and um, so I learned who Aphrodite was. I didn't learn anything about the city of Corinth or anything like that, but I did learn who Aphrodite was. She was the Greek goddess of love. And so she had this incredible temple built to her. There are remains that are there even to this day uh, in the city of Corinth. And uh, this temple was distinguished by its worship. There were a thousand sacred prostitutes that were associated with the temple. So worship of the goddess of love involved um, worshipers uh, having sexual intercourse with temple prostitutes, some of them even priestesses of this religion. So when sailors and others came to the town to trade 
everybody would go up the hill and visit the temple. Everybody was religious. There was a religious and sexual immorality uh, vibe kind of mixed together in the city of Corinth. It was also a city of great diversity. Um, it wasn't just uh, one people. It was a diverse people. It was originally settled as a Roman colony. So many Roman soldiers uh, who were in the military up on their retirement for the military were given land in Corinth. And so it was kind of a retirement area uh, for people from Rome, men who were soldiers. But it was also historically a Greek city because it's in the south of Greece. So it had these two cultures together, Roman culture and uh, Greek culture together. It was a city of great diversity. So it was also a city that valued. Now, this is where it would be different than many of our cities. The immorality, the trading, uh, the, the mixed culture, the melting pot, that's like a modern city. Here's where, sadly, our, many of our cities would not be the same. It was a city that valued wisdom and knowledge. So maybe if you think college town, that might be fair. They were Greeks, so they, they valued philosophy. And one of the things that they held in high esteem, everything I'm telling you, by the way, is going to come up in the letter. I'm not just kind of, hey, this is, here's my slides of my trip to Corinth. Uh, I'm trying to tell you things that will show up in the letter with some value, I hope. But uh, one of the things that they were distinguished by is that they highly esteemed those uh, who were wise, kind of wisdom gurus, and they highly esteemed the gift of rhetoric, those who could speak. So part of their entertainment, which they sound like a base culture at, at one level, going to church meant sleeping with a prophet. So that sounds rather, rather base and, and immoral. On the other hand, they valued wisdom. And so they, were, they had traveling sort of wisdom gurus who would go around and give lectures, uh, philosophical lectures, and be paid large sums of money for this. So that was part of their culture as well, something else that they valued. Uh, well, in this city, Paul starts a church. Paul started this church uh, about three years before the letter. So he started the church, and then he wrote this letter. He started the church. He was in Corinth for 18 months. And what he did was he showed up in the city. He met a couple named Priscilla and Aquila, and they were all in the tent-making business. He made, Paul made tents. And so he worked full-time as a tent-maker in Corinth and then preached the gospel, and people came to Christ, and they established a church. He was there 18 months, he left the church, and then we know from chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, he wrote him a letter. We don't have that letter, but that's really the first letter to Corinthians, uh, and, but it doesn't exist, it's not in our Bibles, but he, uh, he wrote them a letter. From that letter, what we know happened from 1 Corinthians is that they wrote back with some questions, and this letter that we're about to study is an answer to a number of their questions. He also got a report that there was troubles at the church, and so 1 Corinthians is Paul's letter to the church he founded, written about three years after he was with them and started the church, and it's his writing to them to answer questions that they have, and also to uh, to to sort of bring uh, adjustment, admonition, correction to some areas where they were mistaken. Now, what is the condition of this church that he writes to? I love what David Garland says. David Garland is a commentator. He writes a book, wrote a book on 1 Corinthians, and he said this. I described the city and some of the problems of the city of Corinth. He says, the problem was not that the church was in Corinth, but that too much of Corinth was in the church. 
The problem wasn't that they lived in this really worldly city. The problem was that too much of Corinth was in the church, and it shows up in their life as a church. Here's a real brief survey of what this church was like, and I want you to imagine a modern church sort of advertising these characteristics on their website, describing them. This is what this church was like. First of all, they had divisions in the church. We see this in chapters one and chapters three. They were a divided church. Here's how it worked. Some of the people in the church followed different leaders. So some people said, I'm of Paul. Some people said, I am of Peter. Some people said, I am of Jesus, which sort of should have won the day, but they still argued. So people were divided in camps in the church. They were a divided church. Secondly, they lacked appreciation for Paul. They are captivated with wisdom gurus. And Paul, though he came and started their church, he didn't match up. Paul didn't, he wasn't eloquent enough. When he taught, Paul didn't sound like the cultural, uh, philosophical gurus that they liked to hear. And so Paul, well, he didn't really have that much to bring to the party as a speaker. And by the way, he may have started the church, but we really don't need Paul anymore. So they're a church that really disrespects their founder. They are a proud church. They are an ungrateful church for what Paul invested in them. Secondly, as I mentioned earlier, there's immorality uh, in the culture. It's a very immoral culture. Uh, However, there is immorality in the church. And Paul says there's immorality in the church that would even make the people in the culture blush. There is a guy sleeping with his father's wife in the church perhaps his stepmom. There's a guy sleeping. There's familial incest going on in the church. And the Corinthians are sort of proud of this, that this is okay, that, you know, that, that we can celebrate the freedom that we have as believers. So they are a morally lax church. Secondly, Paul has to get onto them because there are lawsuits going on in the church. People are suing one another. When there's a conflict, they sue one another and they take it to court. I mean, can you imagine community group at Corinth? I mean, you're, you're in the living room, it's the community group, anybody have any prayer request? Yes, I'm suing Stephophanus or whoever over here, I don't want to agree, I can't even think of a Greek, Andronicus, I can't think of a Greek name on my feet, but I'm suing Andronicus over here. Oh, really? Oh, wait a minute, would you pray that I win? Wait a minute, Andronicus chimes in, pray that I win. And so, no, we're praying, how do we pray? I don't know. We're praying for who wins the lawsuit. We have people suing one another in the church. They are a vengeful church. Paul says, wouldn't it be better, if you can't work it out, wouldn't it be better just to be defrauded? I mean, for the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, if you can't work it out, why not just get ripped off? Isn't that better than suing your brother as a terrible witness, he says. Uh, There are problems with the Lord's Supper. The way they took the Lord's Supper, which was probably beautiful, was they had a meal and then the Lord's Supper with the meal. Great idea. The problem is the rich people get there early. They have a lot of food and a lot of drink. So they eat all the food. The poor people don't have anything to eat. And the rich people not only bring food, but they bring drink and they're getting drunk. They're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. And so Paul tells them, you know what? In the NIV, it says, your meetings do more harm than good. He says, when you have a communion service, it would have been better for everybody to stay home. Because if you're going to come have communion and some people are going to get drunk and the poor people are going to go hungry, that is an affront to the gospel. So your meetings do more harm than good. 
They are irreverent in the way they handle communion. They're self-indulgent, getting drunk at church. They have spiritual gifts problems. There's a lot of spiritual gifts, but in Corinthians, in, in Corinth, there's only one gift that matters, and that's the gift of tongues. They think if you're really spiritual, that you'll speak in tongues, that you'll speak a language you don't know um, and, and pray to the Lord in that language. And so when they get together, as chapter 14 describes, everybody's just speaking in tongues and nobody can understand what's going on. And Paul has to say to them, look, if, if a newcomer or like a lost person who doesn't know Jesus, if they walk into your meeting, they're gonna think you are mad. That's what he says. They're gonna think you people are insane. So they are, they are, they use spiritual gifts to prop themselves up. If I speak in tongues in front of everybody, I'll look very spiritual, very godly. So they are a selfish church. They use the gifts for their own glory. They are lastly a church that is wrestling with theological error. As a matter of fact, they may be a church that's moving towards heresy and a very important, we recited the Nicene Creed today and uh, spoke of the resurrection of Jesus. Well, there is a problem regarding the resurrection. They say people aren't resurrected. And Paul has to say to them, if people aren't resurrected, then Jesus wasn't resurrected. And if Jesus wasn't, wasn't resurrected, you're still in your sins. And if you're still in your sins, we are of all people to be pitied that we have taught this truth about Jesus' resurrection, but it's not even true according to you if people, don't, if people don't experience resurrection. So they are a doctrinally confused church. So listen to what I just ran through. They are a divided church, a proud church, an ungrateful church, a morally lax church, an irreverent church, a self-indulgent church, a selfish church, a doctrinally confused church. So how do you expect Paul to address this church. There's a Peanuts cartoon with featuring Lucy and Charlie Brown. It's a popular one, Lucy and Charlie Brown. And Lucy says, in Lucy-like fashion, if I was in charge of the world, I would change everything. <laughs> and Charlie Brown says, wow, that sounds like a lot, where would you start? And she points her finger at Charlie Brown and she says, I'd start with you. And if I'm Paul, that's how I feel right now, writing the Corinthians. I'd say, hey, there's a lot of churches. I started a lot of churches. There's some problems in churches, but if we're gonna solve the problem of the church, Corinthians, I'm starting with you. That's what you would expect Paul to say. I would expect a letter that says this, dear Corinthians, repent, love Paul. I mean, that's it. Just that, repent. I'd expect a letter being a dad that, that sounds like this, that Paul starts off in saying, how many times do I have to tell you people? Or something like this. I was with you a year and a half. I worked night and day, paid my own expenses. I didn't take any offerings from you. That's what happened. I paid my own expenses, I labored with you night and day, I cared for you, I taught you, and you go and do this. I'd expect Paul to say something like that. I'd expect Paul to say something, how many times do I have to tell you? Or I'd expect him to say, dear Corinthians, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> I got a report about you guys, seriously? Seriously, this is what's going on? 
That's what I would expect Paul to say, given the church. But how does Paul address the church? Look at verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Jesus Christ. I thank God always for you. That's one of the most shocking verses in the Bible. When you read the whole letter and then come back to verse 4, you say, how can Paul say that? That is astounding. That when he thinks of the Corinthians, he says, thank God always for them. He thanks God for people who are immature. He thanks God for people who are selfish. He thanks God for people who are proud. He thanks God for people who are arrogant. He thanks God for people who are ignorant. He thanks God for people who are divided. He thanks God for people that don't thank God for him. He's thankful for people who don't give a rip about him. Worse than that, who see no need for him, who disrespect him. But he thanks God for them. He thanks God for people who are Christians but are very sinful. People just like you and just like me. He thanks God for them. How does he do this? We'll look at verse four. I give thanks to my God always for you. Here's the reason. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Here's why he thanks God for the Corinthians, because of grace. Because when he thinks of them, he realizes they were given grace in Christ Jesus. And that motivates him to gratitude. He thinks of the Corinthians, and then he thinks of the gospel. What Jesus did for them, his death, burial, and resurrection, dying for their sins. And when he realizes that, he gives thanks. And this is why. Because the gospel transforms the way we relate to one another. Paul doesn't relate to them like what would seem natural. Paul doesn't relate to them in the manner that I would probably relate to them in my flesh anyway. He relates to them in view of grace and in view of the gospel. And the gospel transforms the way we see one another. The gospel, therefore, is to transform the way we feel about one another and the way we relate to one another. And that's why he can give thanks for difficult people. When he sees the Corinthians, he doesn't first of all see the mess. He sees the grace of God on them. And he's thankful. He identifies God's grace in them. And he does that in three ways. He sees the grace of God in their past. He sees the grace of God in their present. And you can probably fill it in. He sees the grace of God in their future. All of those are in this text. First of all, he sees the grace of God in their past. Starting with himself, look at verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Whenever Paul speaks of his own calling, uh, he's describing the grace of God in his life. Paul was a persecutor of Christians. Paul was opposed to Christians. And on the way to persecute Christians, Paul was arrested by Jesus. Not, not literally put in cuffs, but I mean, he was, he was awakened by Jesus Christ. And he was converted. And he always realizes his own calling. His own calling was he was opposed to God 
and God saved him, woke him up and saved him. So when he thinks of himself, he says, I'm, I'm called by God. Now he's called as an apostle, which is a statement of his authority to be sure. But before it's a statement of his authority, it's a statement of the grace of God. And he addresses them, the church of God that is in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. So he addresses the church. The Greek word translated church literally means the called out ones, the company of the called, those who have been called out. That's what the church means. It's not a building. It is a people. And it's the people God has called to himself to be together. So when he thinks of them, he calls them the church, the called ones in Corinth, those who are sanctified and called to be saints together. So he realizes God has called you. God has made you saints. God has drawn you together. When he thinks of them, he thinks about what has God done for the Corinthians? Well, he sanctified them. He says it's past, he, they are sanctified. It's past tense. The word sanctify is used in different ways in the Bible. Sometimes it's talked, it speaks of our progressive growth and holiness, but that's not what it means here. They are the ones who are already sanctified. What does that mean? It means they're set apart. They're set apart to, Paul, to, to God. I heard a guy use an illustration about how, what this means to be set apart, and I, I could relate to it. The guy said, I have one suit. That's me. I have one suit, and I wear it on special occasions. I'll wear it to do your funeral, and I'll wear it to, to do your, your wedding. Now, it won't matter at your funeral. You won't say I've seen that before. At, at the wedding, every wedding picture I've had in the last few years, I'm in the same suit. I probably didn't need to share that little private thing because now you'd notice. But uh, anyway, so, uh, but my one suit is set apart. So in my closet, I have a lot of everyday wear, stuff that I wear all the time. And then I have like my suit on a separate kind of rack because it only comes out on special occasions when I gotta, when I gotta wear it. You know, it only comes out on special occasions. It is set apart from all my other clothing for special use. And the Corinthians, this church is sanctified, literally means they are set apart by Christ, for Christ. They are separated from all the people in Corinth as God's people, his called out ones, his church. So he says, when I think of you, I think of those of you, you you're, the, you're the ones that God has showered his love on. He separated you for himself. Not only that, verse four, I give thanks because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Jesus died for you. He recognizes they've been purchased by Christ who bled and died for them. So when Paul sees the Corinthians, he thinks of people called by God, people that Jesus died for, people that were brought specially to God, for God, loved by God, called to be, he says, verse two, saints together, called with other believers to be together. Paul starts with, I've been called. Can you imagine a person? I was a persecutor of the church, but I'm now God's. And I'm joined to this church of people over here who were living in their pagan culture, likely worshipers of Aphrodite and any manner of other uh, Greek gods and goddesses, worshiping the pleasures of the flesh, worshiping uh, a lifestyle of partying, worshiping pride and wisdom, worshiping money and greed, worshiping all of these other gods, but God pulled them out of that, introduced them to Jesus Christ through the preaching of Paul, called them together, 
God has acted upon them. And when Paul thinks of them, those are the places he goes. That's how he thinks of them. Look at the grace I've received, Paul says, as a called person. Think of the grace towards them and relate to them in that way. That's why when Paul thinks of the Corinthians, he thinks of people treasured by Christ, first of all. Not an irritant to me. So let me ask you this. Think of other Christians in your life. Anyone you find yourself irritated with today. Anyone you find yourself bothered by. Anyone you find yourself impatient with. Another Christian, maybe as close as your family. Don't elbow anybody. Maybe the person you're sitting next to. Maybe someone in your small group. Maybe another Christian in the church. Maybe another Christian you know at work. Anyone that you find yourself bothered by, angry with. They're just always troublesome to you. You, you look at, your, you look at your, your feed, your social media feed, and there they are saying that same thing again, and you're just irritated by it. They're a Christian, sure, but why do they have to always say that thing on Twitter? Why do they always have to post pictures of that on Instagram? Why are they always linking to that article on Facebook? They're another Christian, and yes, they're a Christian, but man, are they an irritant to you for some reason. It could be that they're an irritant because you lack a divine perspective of God's work in their lives, God's past work of saving them, God's work of calling them to himself, God's work of calling them together, God's work of grace that was given to them in Jesus Christ. Jesus bled and died and suffered and endured uh, the, the pain for their sin. He took their sins upon himself as well. He endured the wrath of God's holy judgment for their sins just as much as yours. And when I lack that perspective of others, I can move very quickly to irritation and correction and what's wrong with them because I'm not looking at them through the lens of the gospel and saying, what's God's perspective? What has Jesus done for them? That's how Paul can thank God for the Corinthians, because of God's grace in the past. Secondly, God's grace in the present. Now, he finds God at work in their midst. And this isn't, you know how you like sometimes say something nice to somebody so that you can really get them? Now, now, now I said something nice, now I've got to really bring some correction to them, that sort of thing. So this isn't like he's not, he's going to correct them in the book, but this isn't like the set just kind of setting it in volleyball so then he can spike it. This is the set. Oh, you guys are great. I love you. Here's another set. You're very special. But really, bam, now he's just going to spike truth all over them. Volleyball imprint, Wilson on the forehead. You know, now I'm going to get, that's not what he's doing here. He's not, here's the nice thing before I let him have it. Here's what's amazing. When he wants to say, where do I see God at work in the present? So he's going to go now from grace in the past to grace in the present. Where do I see God at work? He picks the very issue where they are having trouble, spiritual gifts. That's where he goes. That's where he goes. Verse 5. In every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. He recognizes God at work through spiritual gifts 
in their lives. He says this is confirming, it's verse six, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Listen, I preach the gospel and you believe and God is in your midst and here's how I know. Because you have every spiritual gift. You've been enriched, he says, with speech and knowledge. These are things they highly esteem, speech and knowledge. He says you have been enriched in those. Enriched and not lacking any gift, they're kind of parallel words. You've been given speech and knowledge, you don't lack any gift. He's probably referring to spiritual gifts when he says speech and knowledge in verse 4. I'm sorry, in verse 5. Because when we get to 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to see there are gifts of speech that the church has. Church of Corinth has the gift of speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, gift of prophecy. There's gifts of knowledge. I'm sorry, yeah, it's knowledge as well. They have the utterance of knowledge, the utterance of wisdom, the gift of teaching, he says. So they have these gifts of speech and knowledge but they're abusing them. Yet Paul says, I can see God at work. He can look beyond some faulty practices. He can look beyond some weaknesses. He can look beyond some immaturity. They're immature. They've been Christians three years. They got some gifts and they're not using them in a loving, godly way. They're immature Christians. And yet he can look beyond their immaturity and say, I know God is at work in you and I thank God for you because there's grace in the gifts that you have. Matter of fact, you have all the gifts. You're not lacking anything, he says to him. If we aren't aware of God's grace towards others, we'll never respond to them as Paul does here. We'll never thank God for people. He's going to bring correction to them for sure. We'll spend weeks looking at it. He's going to bring them correction, but he starts with thanking God for them because he sees that God has acted on them in the past and he sees God is with them in the present. And isn't that a great model for all of us? If I can't, if I'm relating to another Christian, my wife, my children, my friends, my small group, uh, other Christians that I know, if I can't relate to them, first of all, saying, I thank God that he saved that person. Jesus bled and died and carried their sins. And if I can't say, no matter what their life is like, and they're a genuine Christian, I see God at work in these areas of their lives. If I can't say that, I have no business correcting them. Because my correction will be harsh, impatient. It won't be correction that, that's, that's, that's filled with grace as Paul has. Before he corrects them, and he's going to do it sternly at points. There's some strong admonitions in this letter. He doesn't shy away from saying, speaking the truth. But he does it based on this sense of God at work in you, this sense of I see God having saved you, this sense of I thank God for you. Before the Corinthians hear any correction, they're hearing loud and clear, I thank God for you. When I think of you, always I thank God, even in your immaturities, even in your sins, even in your failures, I am thankful for you. Because the gospel transforms the way we relate together. It, it transforms the way we see one another. And so that person in your life that you're irritated with, that you're impatient with, that you're angry at, maybe you're even bitter with, this divine perspective of God's action in their lives changes everything in how we relate. I mean, how might this apply to your spouse, for instance? If you have a Christian spouse and there is just this gnawing sort of discontent and maybe even anger, maybe even bitterness towards your spouse, 
Might I suggest this is the place to go, the passage we're reading right now. How can you think about God saving your spouse? How can you think about God working in your spouse's life? How can you think about God reaching down in mercy, Jesus dying for your spouse's sins? How can you think about God's love to them? How can you think about God joining them to his church? How can you think about God currently, presently active in his or her life? Listen, if you can't identify in your Christian spouse where God is at work in their life, that communicates way more about you than it does them. Because Paul can thank God for the Corinthians, and Paul can say, I see God at work. I thank God that you don't lack any gift. What is it in their life? Where do you see God at work? See, this is, this is the place to start. Because we need to see those that we love, those fellow believers, we need to see where God is at work before we see what needs to be fixed. Is there stuff that needs to be fixed in their life? Absolutely. Is there stuff that needs to be fixed in your life? Absolutely. But we need to start with where is God at work before what needs to be fixed. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's one of your children. You have a Christian, one of your children's a Christian, and yet there are these massive areas uh, when you look at their life, massive areas of immaturity, of sin, where this looks like they're not even following the Lord in this area. And that can be consuming to you when you look at your kid's life. All you see is your child, your little child's anger, your older child's pursuit of things outside of the gospel, pursuing things that aren't towards the Lord, pursuing relationships or something else, setting goals for their life that aren't pleasing to the Lord maybe. And so you look at them, and that's all you see. Listen, we need to reel back and go, wait a minute. If they're a Christian child, Christian young adult, Christian adult, whatever they are, your kid, where, let me think back to God's acting on them, Jesus dying for them, God's love for them. Where can I identify God is at work? Where can I identify God at work in my spouse, in my kid? How about here's a place to start. They're putting up with me. That's evidence of the patience of God. They've forgiven me. That's evidence of the, for, the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. How about your small group? Does your attitude reflect God's love for those in your group? Do you think of them as people that God has acted upon? Do you think of them as people that God is at work in? Does your participation in your group reveal that? Because if we don't see the grace of God acting on others, we don't see the grace of God active in others, it, any group of humans that we're associated with, we will quickly go to, man, they kind of bother me. I mean, I go to the group and every time it's the same, they say the same stuff. I can sort of predict what each person's gonna say. I've gone enough, I, need to, I don't think I need to be there because I can already recite the script. Or I don't know, I just don't feel like I click with these people. They're just different than me in this way or that way. That reveals that I have not seen them as those for whom Jesus has died. The grace of God is extended to them. The grace of God is active in them. The grace of God is working. I'm not looking for that because if I were, I would say, get me around these folks. I want to see what God is doing. I want to build my life together with other believers growing in him. If I'm not looking for evidences of God's grace, signposts of grace, demonstrations of grace, then it just reveals that I don't have the gospel in view. And all the stuff I was saying at the beginning about the Corinthians being an irritant, I can just put that on other people. But Paul doesn't act that way. Rather, he 
the gospel informs his relationship to them. How about how you view the church? Maybe you're from another church and you're just a guest here today. So how do you view your church? Or if this is your church, how do you view your church? It's it's just so easy to see needs. And if you're new here and wonder what the problems in this church, I'd be glad to talk to you afterwards. Starting with myself and the pastors, there's problems. We're problems. There's There's problems in our church, problems in every church. But it's so easy to start with, yeah, why isn't this? Why isn't that? Why isn't it fixed? And there's a place, absolutely. Paul's going to do it for multiple chapters. There's a place to bring um, a gracious and a loving, but a clear critique and addressing problems in the church. Absolutely. That's just not where we start. That's just not where we start. We start with what has God done in our midst. One of the things that's helpful about going through Corinthians, if you're from another church or you're from this church, is one of the things that's, it's typically not helpful to compare ourselves or our church or whatever. That's typically not helpful. But going through the book of Corinthians, I think you can come away and saying, if God, through Paul, if Paul's writing, Paul thanks God for this church, the Corinthians, then who am I not to thank God for my church if Paul can say, I thank God always when I think of, think of you. I thank God at all times when I think of this church. Who am I to not act in the same way? David Pryor in his First Corinthians commentary says this. The one fact most people have at their fingertips concerning the Corinthian church is that it was a mess. Full of problems, full of sins, division, heresy. It was in this sense no different from any modern church. The church is a fellowship of sinners before it is a fellowship of saints. We need to register this primary truth. Paul looks at the Corinthian church as it is in Christ before he looks at anything else that is true of the church. That disciplined statement of faith is rarely made in local churches. The warts are examined and lamented but often there is no vision of what God has already done in Christ. His confidence in the church at Corinth is based on God's generosity and God's faithfulness. So true, isn't it? It's easy around any group of Christians, any group of Christian friends, any group of Christians that, we, that are our friends and looking at social media, or any, it's just so easy. It takes zero discernment. It is so lazy and so easy to be critical. So easy to take shots. So easy to get irritated. So easy to be condescending and judgmental. But it takes a disciplined statement of faith, Pryor's words. It takes discernment. It takes interaction with God by his spirit through his word. It takes a work of the spirit to look around to believers we know. And our first thought of them is the grace of God in their life. The first thought is not what needs to be fixed, not what are the deficiencies, not what are the weaknesses, not what are the sins, but where is God at work? Where do I see evidence of God's grace in their life? Where do I see what's a 
part of their life where they look like Jesus, and I commend them for that. I appreciate that. We may have very little in common, but I see the work of Christ in you, for his spirit dwells in you. That's a work of grace. And when that happens in a group of people, when, when, when a group of people in a church take on this mindset that we read in the introduction to Corinthians, when it's the heart that Paul demonstrates that's a heart that's full of grace, that sees the gospel first, there will be an aroma about that church, an aroma of grace, an aroma of gratitude that leads people to say, I thank God for you. Where the typical communication is not whispering gossip about, did you see her and I heard he? Easy, that stuff is easy. That stuff is divisive. That stuff is our bent so often. That stuff is the default of our language so frequently. Yet the grace of God changes our heart, changes our eyes, changes our words. So that when we say, did you see her? Yes, I thank God for her. Because here's where I see God at work in her life. Ooh, now I feel bad about saying, did you see what she was wearing? Right? <laughs> That's grace. That's mercy. Because the gospel transforms the way we relate to one another. And it starts with how we view one another from a gospel-centered perspective. I'm out of time, so I'm gonna say this last one very quickly. Grace for the future, because he doesn't just say God acted on you in the past. He doesn't say the gifts of God are in you now. He also says, verse eight, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. He looks to the future and says, God's gonna hold you all the way to the end. Paul says, when I look at the Corinthians, what do I think? Panic! What do I think? They're never going to make it. What do I think? Oh, I hope they don't know I planted that church because they are. No, he says, God's got you. This is what I know is that you will be sustained. Who will, Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you? When Paul looks at the Corinthians, what's his first thought? It's a mess. It's going down the toilet. It's terrible. His first thought is God's got them. They're going to make it to the end. And they're not just going to make it to the end, but in the last day, they, they will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what Christ has done for them, because of the blood of Jesus, because he took their sins, this church, these Christians, though there may be some false believers, but the true believers in this church will stand before the Father faultless on the day of judgment. That's what Paul says. That's grace. When he's looking at them, he is not despairing. He's looking to the future in faith. And when someone relates to you with a vision of God's future grace in your life, it is encouraging like nothing else. We all know the difference. You can bring correction to people. I can bring correction to people in two very different ways. They can feel condemned. I can't believe you. I would never. That kind of attitude that separates ourselves from someone, you're so, that sort of despises them, that sort of looks down upon them. And there's the kind that says, out of love, I thank God for you. And there's a concern I have for you, but I'm with you in it. I'm going to help you. It's not the pointed finger. It's the arm around the shoulder. 
which says, I am with you. And not only this, no matter what happens, here's what I know. God has got you till the end. He will, you're going to make it at the end and you're going to stand guiltless before Jesus. Now let's, by the grace of God, grow together and change together to be conformed in the image of Christ. Let's do this together. That's totally different. That's the way Paul's attitude is. The gospel transforms the way we see people. It transforms our heart for people. It transforms the way we relate to people in their weaknesses, in their sins, in their deficiencies. Because every family, every small group, every church has innumerable deficiencies and sins. But the grace of God will cause us to see Jesus and will cause us to see what sometimes is a little harder to see. God's work and God's faithful promise to sustain them until the end. Well, Paul speaks to a whole church. I'm gonna give you a very specific application as we walk out of here and finish up right now. Who is it that the Lord wants you to relate to with gospel-centered eyes, gospel-centered heart? Who does the Lord want to transform your interaction with starting now? I'm thinking of a Christian, because that's what we're talking about here. What brother or sister in the, in the church, in the body of Christ, is the Lord calling you to walk through the progression we read today as you think about them? So it would look like this. When I think of that person, they're a Christian, first of all, I want to think about Jesus dying for their sins. I want to think about Jesus loves them every bit as much as he loves me. He gave his life for them. He sacrificed because he, cared. he treasures them. He wants them as his son or daughter for eternity. And he invaded their life by the same grace of God. They were just as lost as I was. Yet he reached out and loved them. Isn't that, isn't that powerful? He called them, just like he says in verses 2. Verse 4, the grace of Jesus Christ was extended to them. Number 2, what do I see in their life? They're a Christian. Maybe their life's very messed up. But where do I see God at work in their life? Where could I, maybe even in my journal, privately or in my mind, where could I jot down specific ways where I see them? They're, they're faithful, they're diligent, they're enduring, they're grateful, they're hanging in there. They work hard at their job for the glory of God or hard at their schoolwork. Or maybe they're, they're seeking to be a good mother or a good son they're, 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 they're hanging in there. Life's been very difficult for them. But you know what? I see them here most Sundays. They're, they're, that's a faithfulness. That's, they're, they're pursuing God. So, and that's the work of the Lord in their life. Well, yeah, but what if it's not perfect? Paul commends the spiritual gifts of the Corinthians. Read that. Go read chapter 14 and, and, be, and marvel. Three, God's got them till the end. God is going to mature them. God is going to sanctify them. Doesn't mean Paul doesn't help. He's, he's going to give chapters of help. But this is, the, this is the paradigm. This is what drives him. This is the model that drives him. God's going to sustain them to the end. They're going to make it. One day we're all going to stand before Jesus. This is helpful. Every Christian in this room, we're all going to stand before Jesus, pure, holy, what we experience positionally right now, we're going to experience in real life. No sin, no sorrow. He's going to wipe every tear from our eye, and she's going to be right there with me. He's going to be right there with me. God is not going to give up upon them. They're going to make it until the end, and we're going to be there together glorifying the Lord. He will never leave them. Now, that exercise that I've just walked through, to, to think of someone that way and to pray for them, 
over time will change the way we see them, the way we think about them, the way we're looking to detect God at work in their life instead of what's, what's messed up in their life. That they'll feel that. When someone relates to me this way, it just feels different. Here's how I feel. They're for me, and I sense that. And there's a comfort and a safety and a joy and an openness to someone that we feel safe and helped by, loved, someone that trusts God for us, with us, alongside of us. That's grace. That's the fruit of the gospel because the gospel transforms the way we see people and the way we treat people. That's God's word for us, I believe, today. And as we leave, I charge you, just encourage you to take one person, one situation. Don't say, I gotta love the whole world. I gotta love every Christian. Just start what you do, but let's, I do too. Let's start with one. Let's start with one. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.